Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Turn over to the hymn book of the Bible, Psalm, particularly the 34th Psalm. And I um, want to look a little bit this evening as we continue our study on peace. On peace. The Lord said in the Gospel of John, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And that is a remarkable truth, yea, greater still, not just a remarkable truth because the Lord said it, but practically speaking, um, we get no comfort from this world. Uh, we get no encouragement to live for God in this world. We get no uh, motivation in one sense to do right because of this world. We find all in all, as, the, as uh, Paul said, my sufficiency is of the Lord in 2 Corinthians. And so peace is a powerful aspect in the life of a believer, one which we need at every turn in life. In Ephesians chapter 2, as we read a moment ago, uh, is a wonderful, wonderful truth about how peace is reconciled in the heart of a believer. So you're here in Ephesians chapter 2 and also in Psalm 34. Last week... Last week we looked at uh, seven different perspectives uh, that are found throughout the scriptures on peace. Uh, for instance, if we say, so give us a definition of peace, if you were going to build a definition, you'd want all seven of these perspectives somehow articulated in that sentence that would describe peace. Peace is not monolithic as it relates from God. By monolithic, I mean just one way. Uh, when you look at peace in the New Testament, it's described not just in the New Testament, the Old Testament, well, it's described in a number of manners. And I gave you seven of them last Sunday night. I won't re-preach this, but uh, just in case, I know it's not online yet, it'll be on there shortly. But as you think about biblical peace, you can find many verses that deal with biblical peace as a reference of the gospel of Christ. Uh, for instance, in Isaiah, as we'll look at tonight for just, just briefly, but also in Romans chapter 10, he talks about how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. What a marvelous, marvelous consideration that when you were going to identify peace, it is synonymous in one sense to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we think about peace, we can think about it being a quality of God. It is a very quality of God. May the God of peace sanctify your whole body, soul, and spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. When we think about peace, we can think about it being the, the harmony that believers ought to have. Uh, there to seek peace, there to, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, be at peace among yourselves. We think of peace and how it's instructed in the scriptures. We would note here in Ephesians chapter 2 that it is the result of Christ's finished work. That's, that's great. One, one consideration, if you just look at peace as being the gospel, then what happens after that gospel? Do I just now have peace with God or can I have the ever presence of peace? And that finished work of Christ whereby He has reconciled us to Himself, whereby He has abolished in His flesh, it was read in verse 15, whereby He has reconciled us both unto God in one body by the cross, that speaking not just of a peace and a time passing at the moment of my salvation, but I now can have peace for the balance of my life because of the finished work that He has done. My, if I had to live with the consideration that Jesus Christ saved me and that gave me peace, but then I have to somehow maintain my salvation, knowing that in myself there dwelleth no good things, I would be a little bit like the Apostle Paul if knowing I could only have hope in this life, we are men most miserable. But no, there's the finished work of Christ. 
to the Philippian church, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you shall... That's an important thing. You were saved soteriologically the moment you bended knee and confessed and by faith put your trust in Jesus Christ. But that work will continue in you until the day of Jesus Christ. And it needs to. You know why it needs to? Because every proclivity in your flesh is sinful. At the moment of salvation, I become a new creature. Old things have passed away. But there is still that level of, we'll just call it a humanness quality in me that causes me to see the holiness of God and yet place that, as it were, over myself and see how deficient I am in my daily life. Now that should not just simply say, well, God understands He's forgiven me. That's a violation of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Meganosco, absolutely not. God forbid. But we rather are to yield our members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And so that's that work that He's done. And part of that work is the work of sanctification. So we think of peace is the result of God's finished work in our life. Uh, peace, as we consider it, a fifth element that we spoke of, is that peace... Uh, Peace can reference the stability that should be found in every believer. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, let, peace of God, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word rule, it has the idea to govern and to arbitrate, be led in one sense of the peace of God that passes all understanding. Obviously, as you look at the peace of God, it can be seen as a reference to the pursuit of a believer. What should I pursue? One of my favorite verses in Jeremiah and I think perhaps, and it's not really prophetical as you might would think, but in Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 29, uh, the, the leading figures as it was of the days of, of Jerusalem, uh, they've understood the prophecies of Jeremiah, the weeping prophecy. They're going to be carried away in captivity. They're going to spend the bulk of seven decades in captivity. They're going to leave their houses and lands. It's all been taken from them, and they're going to go into a new country and a new place, and they don't really have a choice with it. And so they've come up to Jeremiah, and they've asked him, what should we do? And one of the things he speaks of is, seek the peace of the city. Seek the peace of the city and you'll have peace. One of the hallmarks of the Christian should be a pursuit of peace. A pursuit of peace in their life. And so there are many references in the scriptures where it talks about believers pursuing peace. And we'll perhaps touch on that again this evening. And then finally, we could look at peace throughout the scriptures being the presence of God. Obviously, if God is peace... Whoever his presence in is peaceful also. And so uh, far more in the scriptures is there just a reference to these definitions of peace. Simply, uh, I should say there's far more references in the scriptures that deal with a, a whole view of the council of peace than it just being the absence of hostility. There are, as we said in the morning hour, 400 times in scriptures 294 by my count in the Old Testament, 106 or so, uh, in the, 104 in the New Testament. It's almost, uh, almost 400 times that you'll find in scriptures a reference to peace. In the Old Testament primarily when you consider peace you can classify it in three areas. Uh, one of them means it's a reference, it's an idiom and they'll speak of going in peace. Going in peace. Another one that you'll find also something of an idiom is when they held their peace. In fact most of the reference or at least very many of the references of peace in Genesis deal with someone saying and they held their peace. Of the seven or eight times the word peace is used in the book of Job, uh, the overwhelming majority of them deal with the fact that someone 
one of his three friends, or perhaps his fourth friend, held their peace, meaning they didn't speak when it was their turn to speak. And then, of course, when you come to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the theme, if you research and do this uh, on peace, when you come to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the overwhelming theme of peace deals with the peace offering that has been made in the Almighty God. And so as you look at all of these some 200 references in the Old Testament, you'd assume that there is a difference in the peace in the Old Testament and the peace in the New Testament. But the fact is, those, those, those three uh, qualities that I mentioned earlier, though they're present in the Old Testament, uh, they're not the only use of the word in the Old Testament. The magnificent doctrine of God of peace is affirmed in the Old Testament. Let me give you just some thoughts. You're here in Psalm 34. You're here in Psalm 34. Let me turn over here. And hold your place there. But in Numbers chapter 25 and verse 12, the Lord references a covenant of peace with His people. You come to the Psalms here in the 34th Psalm. Look down to verse number 14. He's going to reference a pursuit that, that in keeping is, should be in the life of a New Testament believer, but also should be a hallmark of an Old Testament believer. By this, it ought to be a, a, a hallmark and a pursuit of every believer of any age, of all time. Notice, if you will, in verse number 14. He admonishes them, that individual that would desire life and loveth many days. They might see good. What should he do? He should keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking guile, that's deceitfulness. Depart from iniquity, do good. That reminds you of Romans 12, 21. Be overcome, not with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now what do you do? I love the marriage of these two, ver two words here. Seek peace and, isn't that interesting? If I just deal with the idea of seeking peace, then I come to the, the thought that that's all I have to do. And therefore I can have peace if I seek peace because it is being provided by someone else. But he didn't just say seek peace, what did he say? Pursue it. I'm to persecute after it. I'm to press with all of my might to be an individual and obviously in the New Testament, controlled by the Spirit of God, submissive to the Word of God, and walking in the will of God, I should be an individual that can overcome great amounts of difficulty, relying on the sovereign hand of God to pursue peace in my life. I think of, uh, look over in chapter, well, Psalm 37. A few words or verses here. Two verses, I, I suppose. Psalm 37, the crux of the matter uh, that, that David is dealing with, and, you know, it could be any one of a number of circumstances in his life. David's an interesting fellow. Uh, he's a man that was after God's own heart. He's referred to in the Old Testament as a sweet psalmist of Israel. Uh, he's a man that should never have been king, but was sovereignly chosen to do so. He was, he was not the eldest of his family. He wasn't the second eldest of his family. In fact, even his daddy had had uh, surprised, you will, if the, at, the, at the choice that God had made in relationship with David. But yet God chose David for this mighty work. And through almost about a decade or so, he's waiting to become king. And through that time, he goes through great difficulty and persecution. A king that at once had pledged his fidelity and truthfulness, and in fact had even given him his daughter to marry, tried on multiple occasions to kill him. He had friends betray him. I don't think that you could reach a a more darker day than as you come to the closing portions of 2 Samuel and you find out that his son Absalom has stolen the hearts. Absalom. Absalom. His biological son. He had loved him. He had great ambition and hope for him. And it would be Absalom that would steal the heart of Israel from David 
And it would be Absalom that would set his face against his daddy. I can't think of a greater level of, of uh, treacherous activity than that attitude of Absalom towards his dad. And so David knew that pain. David had kings that broke promises. He has friends that had failed him. And on numerous times it seems that his soul would dearly be crushed. So I am not certain of Psalm 37 on exactly one isolated case that you look at the life of David and said, here's the actual backdrop of Psalm 37. There's an innumerable amount of them that could be included in this 37th Psalm. But nevertheless, there is an evildoer that is weighing heavily upon David. Look what he writes here in verse, 30, uh, verse 11 of this as he speaks again about the action of the believer. He speaks of this in verse 11, the meek shall inherit the earth. Doesn't that sound like the words of the Lord in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are the meek, isn't it? And notice he says, and they, these meek, shall delight themselves in the abundance of what? That's so interesting, isn't it? They're going to have to live to learn. They're going to have to learn to live in the supply of God's providential gift of peace not in the might of their own abilities. Now look at verse 37. We quoted this in morning hour too. But he talks about the perfect man, that man that is upright in the way. He said you mark him. The New Testament idea is you identify him as though with a scope. You fix your gaze on him. Mark the perfect man for the end of that man is the way of peace. You see, as you come through the 37th Psalm, you find that peace is an important pursuit, hope, desire, and gift that every child of God has. You come to the gospel, or rather the, uh, the prophetical writings of Jeremiah in chapter 6 and verse 14. And to those, uh, the command is given, speaking of those that have spoke to the daughter of my people, slightly, meaning with deception, saying, peace, peace, while there is no peace. And Jeremiah would repeat his prophecies that God gave him, not only in chapter 6, but also in chapter 8 and verse 11. But perhaps the most far-reaching of the Old Testament books that transmits the idea of peace is, and this is intentional, the Gospel of Isaiah. And I do refer to the, uh, the, uh, the prophets of Isaiah as a gospel. Not because it's a lost gospel or it's the fifth gospel. But when you open up to chapter 1, you almost can see Isaiah given a refrain. Come now, he says, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. What a marvelous invitation to come and be reconciled unto your God. It's in Isaiah that you have the 53rd Psalm, that he was beaten, bruised for our iniquity. Upon him were all of the sins laid. All we like sheep, he would say in the 53rd uh, chapter, have gone astray. In chapter 55, he'll say, Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, let him come and drink. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It's Isaiah in the 64th chapter that you find that wonderful promise about the Word of God that it would not go and void but would accomplish the thing whereunto he had sent it. There seems to be a glorious instruction of God in the Gospel of Isaiah. But listen to these references. The first reference that you'll find in Isaiah is chapter 9. And you're probably familiar with this. It talks about, and a son shall be given, and his name shall be called Wonderful. In verse number 7, he shall be called the Prince of Peace. What a title indeed. You know, um, I, I just dearly like graphs and statistics and things like that. And I, I looked at this thing last night, this fella, I don't know how he got this time. He put one together and he, he took all 46 presidents that we've had. 
And based upon the actions of their administrations, he ranks them as being on the left or the right of the political spectrum or authoritarian or libertarian. And he graphed all 46 of them. The authoritarian ones were ones that used force in some means. Uh, the, the ones that were libertarian were less likely to do so. And right at the crux of the middle matter, he had no one. There was no one he found that, that unified right and left and that had the stroke of balance between the authoritarian and the libertarian. And regardless of how you might feel about that politically, he didn't graph the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there was no spot on that entire graph that would read, perfect, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government shall be upon his what an amazing thing. Lord willing, if God be good to us, we'll have dozens, perhaps hundreds of more presidents. But it will never be said of our country that the government rests on the shoulders of a president. It does not. Presidents come and go. Administrations come and go. But in that day of the millennial kingdom, I, like every child of God that is present, will be able to say, and the government rests upon his shoulders. Marvelous indeed. There's been kings. There have been kings that have built great kingdoms and they've had great lands and they've had great wealth and they've had great prosperity and they have conquered their enemies and have peace. But to every kingdom there is always the demise when that king fails to exist. But in that coming kingdom of our Lord, the government will rest upon his shoulders. The government will exist because he is the king. The government will have peace because he is the inventor he is the developer, and he is the giver of peace. Isaiah continues in the 26th chapter in verse 3. Listen to these words. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Do you remember? Whose mind is stayed upon thee. Well, you might as well. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Everlasting Father. He's the Rock of all ages. And to that individual whose mind is stayed on thee, there is a promise of perfect peace and a rest that is found because they trust in thee. On and on I think of the 32nd chapter. The work of righteousness shall be peace. The effect of righteousness and quietness and assurance forever. The Lord said in the 45th chapter of Isaiah, I form the light, I create darkness, I make peace. In Psalm 53, or rather Isaiah 53 and verse 5, He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. With His stripes we are healed. In the 57th chapter of Isaiah verse 19, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off. To him that is near, saith the Lord, I heal him. Think about that for a moment. Are you open to Ephesians? Look over in Ephesians. Look at verse 17. I mean, you think what Isaiah said over in chapter 57. I'll read it again. I create the fruit of the lips. What do you do with your lips? What are the fruit of your lips? Not the fruit of loom, the fruit of lips. What's the fruit of lips? Fruit loops. <laughs> What's the fruit of your lips? That's your speech. Isn't it? That's what it is. In Hebrews chapter 13, it's called the sacrifice of your lips. And he's talking about praises unto God and thanksgiving, etc. Now, don't you listen to Isaiah again. In Isaiah 57, 
I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off. And to him that is near, saith the Lord, I will heal him. Now listen to what Ephesians says. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 17 of Ephesians 2, and came and preached. What's preaching? It's the fruit of the lips. Peace to you which were afar off, and to them which are. Well, I wonder, sound like they might have the same author, wouldn't it? There's evangelistic phraseology and all that. To those that are far off, the Lord is crying, Peace, peace. And to those that are near, they are recipients of His peace. And then He notes, I will heal Him. Marvelous how you and I need the healing hand of a great God. Yet later in that very same chapter, the 57th chapter of Isaiah, He issues a stern warning in verse 21. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. In chapter 58 and verse 8, the way of peace they have not known. There is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Wheresoever goeth therein shall not know peace. A litany of verses in the Old Testament. God crying out to all of humanity for Isaiah's time, Peace, peace. And to those who fix their thoughts and minds on him, perfect peace is promised. So with all these verses in mind and yet more to come, how does one obtain this biblical peace? How does one experience the healing, comfort, powerful peace that God has promised? Let me give you quickly tonight five methods by which peace of God is transmitted to His believers. Notice, if you will, number one, ultimately, I'm going to use that word each time, ultimately, peace comes from God. You won't find another way. There's no generic substitute for divine peace. In fact, I would even say that peace comes from God, and put this in parentheses, despite circumstances. See, God is in the business of giving peace, and only He can give peace. And really, it doesn't matter how horrendous the circumstances are around His children, He can still give peace. Now, strap on our thoughts for a moment. Think of Daniel, old aged Daniel. Daniel says, Darius, thou mayest not pray for the space of time, and make all thy petitions of the king. In the day that you'll pray, you'll be cast into the den of lions. Do you remember this? Now, what do you think David experienced? Not David, Daniel experienced in the den of lions. The circumstances were desperate. But there's a peace of God in Daniel's heart. The same is true of the three Hebrew children. As they, in a few chapters later, were going to be cast, as they were in the field of Dura, they're going to be cast into uh, the, the fiery furnace. Do you remember? So hot it was that those soldiers that would throw them in died because of the intense heat. And yet Nebuchadnezzar, as he looked down into the fiery furnace, yea, he cast three in, but now there was a fourth man like unto the Son of the living God. I'm submitting to you that their circumstances were horrendous. I tease sometimes my children, that they'll use this expression, such and such is the worst. 
having broccoli is the worst. Doing this is the worst. Having to do this homework is the worst. And I know it's, it's tongue in cheek, but you consider there's a lot of things I'd rather do in life and a lot of things I hope to do in life. But on my bucket list of things I want to do, nowhere to be found is to be cast into a den of lions. Nowhere to be found is to be cast in a fiery furnace. I have many plans that involve my safety and serenity, but I have none of them that I intentionally say, this is something I want to do to make myself more miserable in life. And here you've got some believers that recognize the truth that ultimately peace comes from God, and it always comes despite the circumstances. This is an important truth. Sometimes believers feel that they can't have peace because of the circumstances in life. The biblical truth is this, you can have peace because it ultimately comes from God and it really doesn't matter what your circumstances are. And you can be in the ICU ward getting treatment. You can have great physical infirmities of the flesh and you can have the peace of God because God is the giver and creator of all peace. And if your peace does not come from God, then you do not have peace at all. The psalmist said in the 119th Psalm, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. I remind you of Isaiah. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he conveys this. He is the God of peace. I marvel at that. Where does peace come from? Ultimately, it comes from God, despite circumstances, because he is sovereign. It did not and will not surprise God the trouble that is going to come tomorrow in your life. The test result that doesn't come back like you might have hoped. The difficulty you might have faced. Do you have a sovereign God? Do you have a God that knows the beginning of the end? Do you have a God that has a purpose for you? If you have that God, the God of scriptures, then really my circumstances he knew of long before I was made aware of them. And I can have peace through him because of his sovereignty. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 6, that only high God and potentate. I really like that potentate, you know. It expresses his power and dynamic kingship. I would submit to you that I can have peace because it comes from God, because he is mighty. Who is like unto our God? Who is strong like he? Who can protect? I think of what was the prophet on Mount Carmel, what was his name again? Elijah. You could, you could call him Harry, you know, uh, that, that's, that's a pun for a later chapter, you know, the opening of the next chapter. But, but there's Elijah. There's Elijah in a terrible famine, in a great time of great difficulty, and yet one that witnessed the mighty power of the Almighty God. God sent down fire from heaven. What a mighty God. I can have peace despite circumstances because it comes from God, because he's sovereign, because he's mighty. And I'll just slide one more in there. Because he's the creator. That's an important thing. To deny the creatorship of the almighty God is to leave everything to be but a fable. It's to remove everything but to be an accident. But God has created you. He has formed you out of your mother's womb. He knew you before your parents knew you. And he has given you every opportunity to worship him as he sees fit in his will. 
you can have peace despite circumstances. Notice the second area in which peace can be derived. Not only is it derived from God despite circumstances, but I would submit to you this, ultimately peace comes through salvation. It comes through salvation despite status. Now that's the part I'm really thankful for. I'm thankful for salvation. But I can see how God might be more desirous in one sense. I'm being tongue-in-cheek here. Be a little bit facetious for a moment. I can see with my eyes how God might choose to save some, but not choose to save me. Some might have more noble names. Some might come from a greater lineage than I do. Some might have more intelligence than I do. Some might have more wealth or more ability or more talent. And I mean, what if I'm not one of those people? Well, I'm so thankful that God is crying peace, peace to those that are afar off. He didn't ever say, I cry peace, peace to those with great status. I cry peace, peace with those great talent. He said, I just cry peace, peace to those that want to receive peace. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Draw your eyes to a few verses. Look at verse 11. Where's peace? It comes from God despite circumstances, but it comes through salvation despite the status of the individual. Notice in verse number 11. Previous verses we are well familiar with that salvation is through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are his workmanship. Look at verse 11. Wherefore, What's your word? All right. I know that some figure sacrilege to write in the Bible, but circle that second word. Because what it means, he's saying, wherefore? Because of those things that precede it, the fact that you're unworthy of salvation and God saved you through simple belief and grace through the Almighty Son of God and that you're His workmanship, because that exists, because that truth has been clearly, remember something. Notice what he says that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. Well, what's that matter, Gentiles in the flesh? Who's going to tell you? You're called uncircumcision by that which called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Now note this, because you're a Gentile in the flesh, at that time, you're without Christ. You're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. What's that matter? God called Abraham out of the earth Chaldea. And unto him he gave the promise that through his seed all the world would be blessed. And, and wait, it gets even better. Unto Abraham's seed this Messiah would come. Unto Abraham's seed the promise was given. Unto Abraham's seed, Romans chapter 3, the oracles of God were transmitted. If you wanted to know about holiness of what pleased God you only needed supposedly to look at Israel and you'd find it. Now I have a problem with that. I'm a Gentile. I, uh, last month or so, I've watched these documentaries, this fellow National Geographic, and I, I forget the name of it now, but he's going and he's researching these, these lost cities. And boy, if I, if I want to just relax, that's what I want to watch. It's just boring as all get out. 
but there's something in my mind that just fires the right cylinders. And he goes down, he's somewhere in Peru, and he's talking about uh, this lost tribe. They were defeated by the Incas about 100 years before the Incas were defeated by the uh, conquistadors. And he climbs these rocks way up in there, and here are these sarcophagi in which they had, they had developed them and molded them and shaped them. And you really can't get to them because they're way up in there. And he had to scale these rocks to get there. The locals know it was amazing. One of the sarcophagi was open. He looked in and there's the human remains of a, a former leader. Then, then in the next episode, boy, he's, he's over in uh, Sudan. And he's talking about the kingdom of Cush. Now, I paid close attention to that one. Cush is mentioned in the Bible. He's the son of Ham, Noah, grandson of, of Noah. And then he begins to talk about that kingdom. And all these kingdoms that exist. And you know what struck my attention? Oh, then he went to Scotland. And he looked at the lost kingdoms of the picked people. All of this amazed me. You know what? None of them were Jewish. And the thought proclaimed to me. What if their lives never interacted with the Old Testament Jew. How, how did those ancient civilizations in Peru or the purple painted picks, that's what they would do. If you have any Scottish heritage in you, your ancestors were pickest people and that's what they did, stripped down naked, painted themselves purple and yelled at people. That's why I'm just being honest, that's what they did. And you survey them, none of them were Jewish. None of them had a daddy in the sense of Abraham that was called out. Did they have an opportunity? That's what Romans says. They were without excuse. Why? The heavens declare the glory of God. And the heart of God towards every individual that's ever walked terra firma is the same heart that was exposed to Adam and Eve in the garden. He wanted to commune with them. God forever has cried out to all humanity, to those that are afar off, peace, peace, peace. And a choice to be made. And notice in verse number 17, I'm getting ahead of myself, but he preaches peace. Verse number 11 through 13, he's reconciling the ungodly. And verse number 14, he is satiating the wrath of God. God through salvation, Jesus Christ provides peace. It comes from God. It comes through salvation. I must hurry. My time's almost gone. Number three, ultimately, peace comes by the Holy Ghost, despite the person. What do you mean by that? I mean every child of God gets a full dose of the peace of God. At the moment you're saved, you have the indwelling of the Spirit of God's preacher. I don't know about that. All right, hold your place here in Ephesians. Let's go to Galatians quickly. In fact, if I, if I struggle to give you another verse, this be well worth your note. The moment you're saved, you have the, in, the full indwelling of the Spirit of God in you. Romans 8 says in verse 14 that His Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. And if we're sons, do you remember the next phrase? then we're heirs, not A-I-R. Well, we might be a little airheaded, but H-E-I-R. You know what he's talking about? What's an heir? 
It's 6.55. I got four and a half minutes to be done here. What's an heir? Well, inheritance is what I'm looking for. What did you inherit? You, you inherited salvation. You inherited peace. God is peace. God has supernaturally transmitted to every child of His that portion of His entity. Because of His Spirit indwelling you, you're an heir. What are you heir of? You're an heir of a host of things, but those things also include peace. You're in Galatians? Look in chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit, Paul's, it is singular. So it's one fruit manifested in nine different ways. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the work of God produced in the heart of every child of His. And notice what you have now, that fruit is love, joy. What's your third one? Isn't that interesting? Also, long sufferings in there too. We'll save that one for another day. Do you realize God has given you strength to suffer long? You're heir of that. Say, I don't have much patience. <laughs> Maybe you're picked. I don't know. <laughs> don't paint yourself and scream at people. <clears throat> I don't have much patience. I don't have much long suffering. That's just not me. Well, I'm glad you've recognized this. But now you're a child of God. And brethren, we're now a new creature. And because we're a new creature, we have a new possession. That possession resides within us. That new person is the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God can produce all these works in our life. What are you saying? God can give you peace despite circumstances. God can give you long-suffering when you think that you have just come to the end of yourself. God can help you love the unlovely. God can give you gentleness, though you're a bull in a china shop. God can give you goodness even though that virtue may be uh, debunked from your very being because perhaps your experience in life has brought you to be someone that is selfish and somewhat miserly in life. God can produce goodness in you. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Ultimately, peace comes by the Holy Spirit of God despite the person. Peace can be and should be multiplied in the lives of those that have the presence of salvation within. Number four, ultimately peace comes by pursuit of righteousness and truth. All of that's true. Yes, it comes from God. Yes, it comes through salvation. Yes, it comes by the Spirit of God. But guess what? To experience it all, it still bears witness of all of those Old Testament truths too. You're going to have to pursue it. You're not just simply going to be able to go into the spiritual pantry and pluck peace off the shelf, take one capsule, and all of a sudden have a local dosage. There is a requirement in your life to pursue righteousness and truth despite ongoing and erroneous errors that exist. James 3 says this, that the peace of righteousness is sown in the peace of them that make peace. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, Be at peace among yourself. I'll read you a couple other verses here. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and 11. Be of, be, uh, uh, finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Yes, peace comes as we pursue righteousness and truth despite errors that exist. And finally, number five, peace comes to the believer. Ultimately, peace comes by resting in His promises despite our own ability. I don't know about you, but I don't rest easy. My mind is very active. There's a lot of things to consider. But then I think of the promises of God and I can have peace. And peace seems somewhat in the scriptures to be synonymous with a level of rest that I find in Him. Man, when I was trying to earn my way to salvation, there was no peace. But the gospel of the Lord said, Come unto me, all ye that are, what is it? Heavy laden, weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn of me. Thereby I receive rest unto myself. All that trying to work my way to heaven, all that trying to synthesize truth, I can come to Him and because He is God and He is the author of peace, because He has made me to be at peace uh, and, and, and uh, satiated the wrath of God and He has given me of His Spirit and now I pursue righteousness and truth, I can just rest in His promises and I can know peace. Peace, rest. I can have peace because of the comfort He provides. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 8, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, He is the God of all comfort that comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we might be able to comfort those wherewith the comfort that we have received. I can have confidence in Him. 1 Peter chapter, seven, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and, and verse 7 and 8, He talks about the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold with perishes. And he goes on the next verse and, he, and the following verses and he, and he talks about the wonderful truths of salvation despite all the sufferings that exist now. Even the heavenly angels desire to look into those things. But we are saved, we are redeemed, not with corruptible seed, but by an incorruptible seed which liveth and abideth forever. Boy, that's a level of confidence that I have in Him. And thereby I can let the peace of God rule in my heart. I can be thankful I can consider Philippians chapter 4 and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep, guard, sentinel your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. That's simply resting in that peace. That's giving the circumstance to Him. That's resting. Oh, there are many times in the life of a Christian that the reason we don't have peace it's because we've not come to the firm reality that we have it. We've just got to rely on it. God leads His people through peace, not turmoil. Oh, that the child of God would recognize the precious, potent power of peace and that it would be desirable to each believer. So often we speak of love of God's love for us as being preeminent. We speak of provisions. We speak of His care. We speak of His might. But yet it is the peace of God that secures our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God's great gift to His saints. Peace. My peace I give unto you. Let's stand to our feet. Father, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 
126-541 Harrisburg, Pennsylvania 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time, 